0: Haunted UK Podcast is recorded and mixed in stereo. Listening through an environment such as stereo speakers or headphones will ensure you get the best experience. Let me quickly tell you about our official podcast sponsor, CDS Print and Design. CDS is a family-run company who offer great prices and great products such as printed T-shirts, hoodies, canvases, coasters, placemats, stickers banners, signage, and much, much more. For more information or for a free no-obligation quote, email Colin or Debbie at cdsprintanddesign at gmail.com. You can also find CDS Print and Design on Facebook and Instagram. To many skeptics, the odds are firmly stacked against the possibility of the existence of an unknown undiscovered bipedal hominid ape-like creature, which is said to roam the woodlands and forests of not only the Pacific Northwest of America and Canada, but also other countries throughout the world. Their arguments include the lack of remains of such a creature, shoddy video and photographic evidence is frequently shot down, But have all of these witnesses who have encountered these creatures been lying or guilty of misidentification? This is the third and final part of our bonus end of season special on the legend that is Bigfoot. And in this episode, we'll close out with some extremely convincing witness encounters. As with the phenomenon of ghosts or poltergeists, thousands of witnesses are completely convinced that they have encountered something truly incredible and unexplained. It's no different to those people who've encountered Bigfoot. They are steadfast in the belief of their sighting, and again, as with the paranormal, Bigfoot encounters can, and do, happen to all sorts of people, believers and skeptics alike. And talking about skeptics, On the 15th of July, 1989, an encounter took place which shook the witness to their core. Since Elmer Frombach had come back from his hike earlier that day, his wife and friend knew that there was something very wrong. He was avoiding conversation and would only give one or two word answers when asked about how his day had gone with his parents, his niece, his son and his son's friend. Suddenly, Elmer collapsed right then and there in the kitchen. Both his wife and his friend Kevin picked him up and sat him down where he soon recovered. Shocked, they asked him what was wrong. It was then that Elmer began to tell them a story that was simply astonishing. As planned, Elmer had met his parents and the others for a hike in the Cascade Mountains. The area that they had decided to hike in had a reputation of having an abundance of old mine shafts and tunnels. This was something that fascinated the whole group, so they made a point of exploring some of the old tunnels to see what they could find. Elmer had been somewhat of an amateur prospector, and after a while of exploration, the rest of the group wanted to continue their hike. Elmer, however, wanted to stay behind and mark out a mining claim which he would come back to later. When he was satisfied that all was in order with his claim, he started along a pathway to begin catching up with his parents, niece, his son, and his son's friend. The pathway was cut into quite a steep slope, and as Alma was walking he began to hear a noise which sounded like large rocks being smashed together from above his position. At first, he thought that it was either his family playing a prank, or some hikers trying to get a scare out of him. So he shouted up to whoever it was to cut it out. It was at that moment that Elmer said the situation exploded in a massive amount of noise as he watched a large shape come tumbling down the slope, crashing through low tree branches and bushes until it landed in a heap on the trail around 30 feet in front of him. This heap was covered in dark brown hair and looked very large. Elmer was frozen to the spot, getting prepared to run from an extremely angry and hurt bear But as a low grunting noise came from this creature, Elmer began to think that this might not be a bear at all. His suspicion was confirmed when the large heap on the ground began to stand up. It just seemed to get bigger and bigger, raising itself onto two legs to a height of at least eight to nine feet tall, with an incredibly large build to match. Frombach noticed that this creature was completely covered in hair apart from its face and the top of its head and had a distinctly human-like face and eyes which was staring straight at him. Elmer said that the creature began to walk towards him just like a human only much, much bigger. Frombach reached for his handgun which he carried for situations such as this well, not exactly like this He aimed the gun into the air and fired a warning shot, which brought the creature to a stop. But as Elmer looked at it, he could see that the gunshot hadn't alarmed it at all. Instead, it just looked at him in a way that Elmer described it as sending a message to him that he was the biggest thing on this mountain and nothing was going to frighten him away. The creature casually turned around and began to walk away down the trail, taking huge strides and covering the ground with ease. Elmer Frombach knew that this was no bear, no ape, and definitely no human. It was a creature that should only have existed in legends, stories, movies. In tales told by unreliable witnesses who just wanted their 15 minutes of fame. It was Bigfoot, Sasquatch, and Elmer Frombach had just had a close encounter with one. Frombach had left the backpack with supplies further down the trail, but it was in the same direction which the Bigfoot had headed for. He decided to follow along the trail carefully, get to his backpack and then get back to the road, but as he rounded a sharp bend he saw the creature squatting down looking like it was digging. It quickly became aware that it was being watched by Elmer. So it picked up a rock, approximately the size of a basketball, and smashed it off the floor a number of times. Frombach then said that he knew he was in trouble, and that he had to get away as quickly as possible. The Bigfoot stood up to its full height again, and started to run at Elmer. Elmer turned and ran as fast as he could back along the trail, and looked back to see the creature run down the steep slope crashing through branches and undergrowth in an effort to cut him off further down the pathway. Frombach's lungs were on fire, and he simply had to stop running to quickly catch his breath. And as he stopped, the Bigfoot stopped. There was total silence. Frombach could no longer see the creature. Becoming even more nervous, he started to run again and was even more alarmed to hear the trees and undergrowth being ploughed through as the Bigfoot began to run again as well. As Frombach ran, he looked over to try and spot where the creature was, but just saw bushes and small trees being flattened. Elmer Frombach was 100% certain that if the Bigfoot had wanted to catch up with him, it could have done it with ease. Instead, he saw it as a way for the creature to frighten him away from its territory. And that's definitely something that it succeeded in doing. He initially told his wife that he'd encountered a bear, but soon broke down and told her and his friend what had really happened. As the story began to gain traction, it soon came to the attention of Bigfoot researcher and founder of the Bigfoot Research Project, Peter Byrne. He was intrigued and completely fascinated by Frombach's encounter and wanted to get out to the site of the incident to investigate further. Frombach agreed to go back out there and show Peter Byrne the location. Byrne found huge 20-inch long footprints and had made a point of making the area a location of high interest. The story even made it onto the TV series Unsolved Mysteries. So, was Frombach lying about this whole encounter? Did he make all of this up to get his 15 minutes of fame? Well, according to family and friends, he'd never do anything like that. He's a down-to-earth loving family man. His wife and friend also state that they'd never seen him in such a nervous and frightened condition like the one he was in when he returned home after the sighting. Even to this day, he has kept the location a secret as agreed with Peter Byrne, who wanted to study the area in more detail. Before we carry on with this episode, I'd just like to tell you about the Haunted UK Podcast's Coffee account. If you love the show and want to help out that little bit more, then get yourself over to Coffee, that's K-O-F-I, and search for the Haunted UK Podcast, and for just a subscription of £3 per month, you'll get a shout-out in an episode of the main show, chances to get your hands on free Haunted UK Podcast merchandise, and you'll also soon be in line for bonus content bite-size episodes. Getting to a target of at least 30 subscribers is the aim, and I know that with your help, it's easily achievable. And it's literally just the price of buying one coffee per month. If you'd rather not subscribe, then you can simply make a one-off donation. Every little bit helps. So if you want to help the podcast grow to the next level, then pop over to coffee and make your donation. Coffee, why not buy us one? Now, let's get back to the episode. But what about other people? What about other encounters with these creatures? Well, another amazing story came from a man named Todd Neese in 1993. At the time, Neese was an IT manager, but also a sergeant in the US National Guard. As a child, Todd had heard about the rumours of strange, large, hair-covered giant wild men roaming around the dense forests of Oregon. And although he was fascinated, as he grew older, he didn't really believe that there could be such creatures out there. That was until he had his own encounter. He was out on training exercises in the forests of Portland, Oregon, when he was instructed to set up and detonate some demolition explosives as part of a training drill. These explosives were to be set up in three separate locations and set off one after the other. Todd and three other soldiers would then inspect the blast sites as they drove around each location in a military Humvee. After triggering the explosives at all three sites, the group began their journey and always going to plan until they reached the second blast crater. As Todd looked over at the site, he noticed what he initially thought were three people standing near the crater. Where had these people come from and how had they got so close to an explosives test site? Todd states that whenever exercises like these took place, the area where they were being conducted was always thoroughly checked for members of the public and cleared, just to make sure that there would be no casualties. But as the group looked again, They could clearly see that these figures weren't human. Todd said that the first thing that struck him about these beings was the length of their arms which he said were almost past their knees. He also noted that these creatures were incredibly well built and were covered in jet black hair and estimated their height to be around nine feet tall for the being in the middle with the other two at around seven to seven and a half feet tall. As the Humvee rounded the track around the site the group lost view of these beings, but this wasn't the last that he'd hear about this sighting. As they returned to a safe site, readying themselves for another explosives test to commence, Todd Niece could still just about see the second blast crater. To get a better vantage point, Todd jogged a short way back down the trail and was on tiptoes trying to get a peek to see if the creatures were still there, when suddenly he heard his superior shout, What are you looking at? Todd turned to see his superior walking towards him, and when he got within earshot, he said, Hey niece, you didn't happen to see what was at that second blast site, did you? Replying, Todd asked, Well, what did you see? To which his superior said, Well, I saw three hair-covered Bigfoot. It was also the fact that the other soldiers in the Humvee also came forward with their support to the sightings, that they'd all apparently experienced. Now, these people aren't just hikers out in the forest accidentally mistaking a bear for something else. These are highly trained US National Guard explosives experts. But we all make mistakes, right? Before we continue, here's a great promo for a podcast that you should really check out.
1: Persons Unknown Is a true crime podcast dedicated to unsolved murders and disappearances. My name is John. I'm based in Wales and cover cases from Wales, the rest of the UK and the wider world. Each episode tells the story of a cold case, from the original timeline right through to recent developments. The content is based on thorough research and all the evidence is presented in a clear and engaging way. There's no banter but a respectful narration of what happened and any theories. A new episode is released every other Monday, with occasional bonus episodes. There are already plenty of episodes to binge. Find Persons Unknown wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Let's move our focus to another intriguing sighting which happened around a thousand miles away, near the location of Vancouver Island, which is located off Canada's Pacific coast. This island has an area of around 31,000 square kilometers with a number of smaller islands dotted around it. Many of these islands have dense forests which house a variety of wildlife, but they were also once home to Native American tribes. Village Island in particular was where a man named Tom Seaweed was born. His tribe had always believed that a creature which they called the Pukwus had roamed the forests of Village Island and other islands in the area for thousands of years, coexisting with its human neighbors in peace. Tom states that many of the legends, stories, beliefs, dances and even rituals which his people practiced revolved around the existence of the Pukwus. But is it a real creature? Well, according to Tom, his elders' and his tribe's folklore, yes, it's definitely real. The Perkus was always described as a large, hair-covered creature which walked on two legs, just like a human. It could sometimes be seen on the beaches of the islands searching for food, but this was a rarity. Over the years, Not only Village Island, but other surrounding islands have become abandoned as the last of these many Native American tribes have either integrated with society or have simply unfortunately slowly faded away, leaving only distant relatives to try and carry on their traditions and beliefs. Back in the 90s, Tom recalls an incident which happened to himself and a friend as they were traveling around some of these abandoned islands in Tom's boat late one evening. As it was getting dark, and only a few hundred feet from the beach, they both began imitating wolf calls to see if they could get a reply. After a short time, they did get a reply, but it was nothing like either of them had ever heard before. Tom described the sound as a whooping type noise or call that repeated a number of times. This sound seemed like it was very close by, almost as if it was coming from the beach in front of them. There was then a smell that both men said was very strong and pungent which also seemed to be coming from the direction of the beach, being carried towards them by the evening breeze. Tom decided to switch on a searchlight on his boat and started to scan the beach in an effort to see if they could catch a glimpse of what could have been making the calls. As the light swept along the beach, both Tom and his friends saw something moving from the bushes and heading towards a large rock near the water. As soon as they brought the light back to where they saw movement, they were both astonished by what it was illuminating. A huge, hair-covered, man-like creature was stood right there on the beach. But it was when it dropped to one knee and brought its forearm across to cover the lower half of its face that Tom really became completely amazed. This stance that the creature had displayed was exactly the same as the stance that Tom had been taught by his elders when he used to dance the Pukwus. It was completely unbelievable. The creature then rose back up to its full height and made its way down the beach and back into the undergrowth. Whilst the Pukwus was embedded into the fabric of the tribe which Tom belonged to and was proud of, even he had his doubts that such a creature could actually exist in the real world. But that night gave him all the evidence that he needed before we carry on, here's another great podcast which you should listen to.
1: Hi there, this is Kate. And I'm Dominic. And we are your hosts of Shitting Bricks, the podcast. Every week we'll bring you an episode of what makes people shit bricks.
0: Is it a fear of death? Deep water? Running out of wine? Cannibalism? We take a warped look at these topics using examples from history that are the epitome
1: ...of some scary shit. You can find us on all the regular podcast streaming services... ...like Apple, Spotify and Google. For exclusive content including behind the scenes nuggets... ...links to weekly topics and maybe even merch in the future... ...head to Shitting Bricks Podcast on Instagram and YouTube. But for now, drop your dax, pop a squat and let's get into it.
0: Now... It's back to the show. As we've previously discussed and have just heard yet again, many Native American tribes seem to have lived in a certain element of peace with these mysterious creatures, choosing not to invade their territory and to not hurt them or disturb their existence. Instead, all the evidence in their folklore, rituals and sacred dances point to the complete embracing of these beings into their own way of life. A huge amount of respect for these watchers of the forest has developed over hundreds, if not thousands, of years. It also goes without saying that many members of the US National Guard, as well as many Native American tribesmen who have lived, worked and hunted in the Pacific Northwest of America and Canada, know the difference between a bear and, well, something else. Let's move on again to another sighting that took place in 1985 to the Bradshaw family. Fred, Carol and their adult son Rick were already keen Bigfoot believers and had read reports of sightings of the creature in the North River area. They decided to head out to the forests and woodlands in that location and camp out for a few days to see if they could spot something themselves the family took their truck and camping gear deep into the woods and found an ideal location where to set up. After setting up the majority of their gear, Rick and Fred decided to go down to the nearby river to do a spot of fishing, leaving Carol behind to finish off getting the last bits and pieces set up and organised. Even as they grabbed their rifles and fishing gear from the truck, Fred remembers that the whole atmosphere seemed off. He described it as an eerie feeling that he just couldn't quite put his finger on. Little did he know, his wife Carol was feeling exactly the same. Throughout the whole day, strange periods of unnatural quietness would descend around her while she was at the campsite, making her feel that she wasn't alone out in the woods. These moments would be punctuated with movement coming from deep within the forest, then just as quickly as they would occur, normality would come back with birdsong and a breeze. Meanwhile down at the river Fred and Rick were finishing up and making their way back to Carol and their camp for dinner. As the family lit a fire and prepared their food they discussed their plans to get some early sleep and then head out to the location where the Bigfoot sightings had occurred later that night. Fred was aware from many reports that it seemed the creatures were more active at night. So it made sense that they rest up and go out in the early hours. As they were getting ready to go to bed, the sound of what the whole Bradshaw family can only describe as the breaking of a very large, thick tree branch happened very close by. Rick immediately grabbed a flashlight, as the light from their fire was only making things more difficult to focus on. As Rick swept the area with the beam from the flashlight, Carol caught sight of something moving in the tree line straight ahead. She pointed this movement out to both Fred and Rick, with Rick then pulling the flashlight back to the area of activity. Right there, standing by a large tree, was the figure of what looked like an extremely large, hair-covered creature. The sighting went on for a few minutes until it finally disappeared off into the forest. To this day, all three family members are fully convinced that what they saw that night was a real Bigfoot. Another case of being in the right place at the right time? Or just another case of misidentification? To bring this mini-series to a close, we're going to hear about the experience that a man named Sander Jane endured whilst out in the forest surrounding the Claircot Sound. The Sound is a stretch of water which has many inlets branching from it and islands. This particular sound is located on the west coast of Vancouver Island and is one of the many areas in this part of the Pacific Northwest that is well and truly wild and controlled by nature itself. Sander is a photojournalist specialising in capturing stunning images of wildlife and landscapes in all their natural beauty. His work has featured in such publications as GEO, Natural History Magazine and CANU. He's also an experienced kayaker, and it was a trip into the Cleoquat Sound in 2012 that set his imagination alight. Lasting only a few days, Sander knew that he needed to return sometime in the near future, but for much longer. His wish was granted in 2014 when he was notified of an isolated cabin which had become available. The cabin was located in a very remote area of the Sound, built deep into the sloped mountainous forest near the water the trip was scheduled to last between one to two months. Sander had organized a boat to transport him, his supplies and equipment, as well as a kayak and a satellite phone to the landing area near the cabin. After Sander had unloaded the boat, he waved goodbye to the driver and watched as his only mode of transport out of the area finally left him alone. He started to move all of his supplies and equipment to the cabin and began to settle in. He would wake early in the mornings and see the fog and mist clearing from the mountains. The days would be warm and clear, and the nights cool and starlit. He would paddle his kayak around the waterways and watch otters, seals, and sea lions in their natural habitat. But on land, the wildlife would be heard, but would keep its distance. At night, Sander would write up a journal by candlelight as there was no electricity, gas, or water supplied to the cabin. When you were out in this kind of wilderness, you were well and truly on your own, with the surrounding environment in total control. As the days went by, Sander became fully aware that the wildlife, even though it couldn't be seen, was always close by. It seemed to ooze an air of intimidation and authority that could at any time make itself known. As the fifth day rolled around, Sander recalls that he decided to catch up on some sleep in the afternoon and awoke to darkness in the cabin. He'd slept all the way through it to the evening. He noticed that the weather had also turned, from bright and fresh to now cloudy and muggy. And as he stood outside on the decking that surrounded the cabin, there was a very strange, eerie silence. No sounds from the water. No wind. No birdsong. Nothing. Sander grabbed his satellite phone and sent a few texts to a friend to let him know what had been going on over the last few days. Then a sound in the distance caused him to stop everything that he was doing and focus on the outdoors. He decided to go out onto the porch of the cabin to see if he could try to identify what the sound was. Silence was all he heard, until it happened again it sounded as if large rocks were being thrown around. Initially, Sander thought that it was most likely a large black bear shifting rocks to find food near the water. But then the vocalization started to happen. Whooping owl-like sounds began to come from the forest, as if multiple sources were calling back and forth between each other. And the really strange and eerie thing that Sander noticed was that there was complete silence from the wilderness whilst these calls were happening. Trying to keep himself busy, he decided to go to the bathroom and brush his teeth and get himself ready for sleep. But then the moving rock sounds started as well as the vocalizations. And the disturbing thing about all of this now was that it sounded much closer to the cabin than before. It was now around 11.45 p.m. So surely this couldn't be human activity, as there was no sign of lights or voices. So what was making the sounds? Sander convinced himself to get himself ready to get some sleep in the attic space where his bed was. It was safe up there, and he could hopefully drift off to sleep and awaken in the morning to the usual sounds and views that he'd become used to over the past few days. He settled down and drifted in and out of sleep as the rock sounds and vocalizations continued. After what seemed like hours, Sander finally fell asleep, but his peace would be very short-lived. His sleep was shattered by what sounded like two creatures stomping around the decking which surrounded the cabin. The forces of the stomping were so strong that they would literally make the whole cabin shudder. More vocalizations started but these were different. They were louder and seemed full of anger and rage. Sander recalls that whatever was making these sounds, it was definitely trying to let him know that he shouldn't be there, that he should leave and never return. Sander grabbed the satellite phone and began sending messages to his friend to urgently get a float plane out to him as quickly as possible as he needed to get out, but he never had a clear view of the sky he just hoped that one of those messages would get through. He spent the remainder of the night petrified and in complete terrified silence as he waited for whatever was outside to hopefully get tired and venture back into the forest. As dawn began to break, Sander listened as the creatures began to walk away. He figured that there were two animals out there, and judging by what he'd heard and with his vast experience and knowledge of the wilderness, They were bipedal upright walking creatures, and he knew exactly how completely ridiculous that sounded, but he couldn't ignore what he'd experienced. As more daylight began to spill over the cabin and the landscape, the satellite phone sounded a notification. One of the messages had gotten through, and his friend had alerted a float plane pilot who was on his way. Sander knew that he wouldn't be able to get all of his gear into a float plane, ...but he'd just have to organise a boat to pick up the rest when one was out near the location of the cabin. He grabbed what he needed and made his way down to the shoreline... ...leaving the cabin and not looking back. He was terrified that whatever was out in the wilderness last night was still out there somewhere... ...and was now a sitting target standing at the water's edge, waiting for the plane. After a while he heard the unmistakable sound of a float plane making its way up the stretch of water to his location. He was soon on board, and as the plane began to slowly make its way out to deeper water so it could begin its takeoff procedure, the pilot asked Sander why he'd cut his trip so short. He just replied that he heard a few things over the course of the few nights that he was out there and didn't feel safe. But the pilot wasn't going to let it rest he pressed Sander more and eventually got the full story. The pilot's reply was simple. As the plane took to the skies, he said, Hmm, that sounds like Sasquatch to me. I hear stories from people up around here who see them turning over boulders on the shoreline. This was reinforced again when a friend commented that the area that Sander was in was known by the First Nations as home of the Sasquatch. So as we bring this three-part Bigfoot mini-series to a close, you need to ask yourselves, do you believe or are you still not sure? Bigfoot researcher Larry Lund often said that the human race needs a mystery, something unexplained, a monster, something out there that just might be real. Could this be Bigfoot? All of these witnesses, past and present, couldn't all be lying. Could they? As usual, it's all down to what you believe. But if you're lucky enough to find yourself somewhere out in the Pacific Northwest of America or Canada, and you hear something in the distance one night, something that just doesn't sound quite right, then you need to beware. Because the next person to have an encounter with Bigfoot could be you. Thank you so much to you all for listening to this three-part Bigfoot mini-series. The Haunted UK podcast will be taking a short break, but Season 3 is on the way. Also, if you're on Instagram, keep an eye on the Haunted UK podcast's Instagram account for further updates of when Season 3 will be released, episode details, and also a special Halloween collaboration with the Boo Pod Network. well we've come to the end of this episode of the haunted uk podcast but before i go i'd like to give a few shout outs and the first one is to all of you the listeners thank you so much for following subscribing and listening none of this would be possible without all of you the show is available on all major platforms including spotify apple podcasts google podcasts breaker Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. Wherever possible, leaving a positive five-star review helps the show in many ways. Listener figures are rising rapidly, and that's all down to you. So, huge thanks to you all. Another shout-out goes to the show's sponsor, CDS Print and Design, who have been kind enough to come back for a third season. Huge thanks to both Colin and Debbie. Next up is a request to all you listeners out there again. Have you seen a ghost? Witnessed poltergeist activity? Had a strange, unexplained paranormal experience? Have you ever stayed in a haunted location or experienced something frightening on a ghost tour? Even better, do you live or work in a haunted house or building? Have you encountered or seen a UFO? Heard a story about an unsolved disappearance or mystery? Or have you been lucky enough to witness a strange, unknown creature? If you have, then your story could feature on Season 3's Listener Stories finale episode. Simply type your story up and email it to hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com. That's hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com. It's easy to do, and if you like, you can remain anonymous. Huge thanks in advance to you all. Besides writing, recording, mixing and mastering this podcast, I also run a mixing and mastering studio called Pink Flamingo Music Productions. If you have a podcast or piece of music that you'd like mixing, mastering or both, or if you'd like a piece of finished music written for a project that you're working on, then please email the studio with details of your inquiry to pinkflamingo.musicproductions.com. At hotmail.com. That's pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com. It's nowhere near as expensive as you'd think. This podcast was recorded at Pink Flamingo Music Production Studio in Hale's Owen in the West Midlands, England. For a full list of research sources that helped immensely with the content of this episode, please refer to the show's notes. Thank you all so much again for listening And we'll be back very soon with another episode. Until then, stay safe and take care.